The Common Good presents a special conversation with Admiral Mike Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, I want to turn this over to the Admiral, who obviously we're in, as he said earlier, a challenging period of time, but one that he, more than some of us, have confidence we will surmount. Thank you, Tom, and thanks for hosting. Um, there's obviously an awful lot I can talk about, and what I'll try to do is cover a few subjects in maybe 25 minutes or so, and then open it up to get to what's on your mind. I, too, would like to recognize Jack Jacobs. I mean, all of us who've had the privilege to know him and others who were recipients of the Medal of Honor, truly a special individual and a very, very special group of people. So, Jack, it's good to see you again. Um, um, I, actually, the first thing I want to talk about tonight is the military and politics. Um, and uh, along with everything else that's gotten politicized in the last couple decades, uh, I worry a great deal about the politicization of the United States military. My background is, uh, until I got to Washington in the early 2000s, is I basically was an outsider in Washington. I had never been there. And then once I got there, uh, it seems as though I stayed forever. And I, I did a couple short tours out, but for the most part, I was there for the better part of a decade. And so I watched the politicization uh, happen in DC uh, and rose to positions to, first of all, head the Navy and then be the chairman. And as chairman, one of the things uh, that I worried about the most was uh, keeping the military apolitical. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's a treasured uh, attribute of who we are, and I worry a great deal uh, about uh, the fact that uh, we have had the opportunity and in some cases have been politicized. Um, it really didn't strike me until I was the head of the Navy. I was a member of the Joint Chiefs in 2005 and 2006. When Bob Gates called me into his office one day, the first thing I noticed in Gates's office was there wasn't anybody there. The horse holders were gone, so I knew something was up. He sat me down, and about he starts talking, and about 20 seconds in, I figure I figure out where he's going, and he's gonna he's gonna say the president wants me to relieve Pete Pace as chairman. And and at the 22nd mark, I sort of go into one of these slow motion movies in your head. I can sort of hear him talking in the background. I'm going, holy criminy, I, I, you know, no idea. And you think you have, you think, I've been there a while, you think you know what's going on. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, I really didn't. And what happened to Pete Pace, who I had known since I was a second class midshipman at the Naval Academy, my roommate actually dated his wife uh, before they met, um, and he was a good friend, but he got into the political crossfire in Iraq. This is right at the surge in Iraq in 2007. And Gates goes to the Hill to see Levin and McCain, and neither one of them are going to support the nomination. The president at that point didn't have enough uh, uh, credibility on the Hill to be able to put him across the goal line, if you will. So, and Gates came to town to put out fires. He didn't come to town to start fires. And so, so that was a real wake-up call for me. I didn't say yes immediately. I said I've been living with a young lady for almost 40 years. I need to have a conversation with her before I say yes. We did that that night. And so a few months later, I took over as chairman. What, um, and then what, what, what I didn't understand, people say, well, what was it like to be chairman? Well, 
When you walk into the White House, a couple things happen. One is the hair's got to go up in the back of your neck. If that doesn't happen, you, you shouldn't be doing it because it's an incredibly special place. Secondly, it's a tremendous privilege. Now, we're in two ground wars at the time, Iraq and Afghanistan. Tremendous privilege to lead you know, 2.2 million men and women who are serving, uh, and obviously, as I said, in the middle of two wars. But the third thing is, it is a foreign place for somebody in the military. I mean, you do politics 24-7, 365 in the White House. Everybody does, been doing it you know, for a couple centuries now, and that's what's going on. And you're the only military representative that's there. So, and the reason I point that out is because, and I'll come, I'll come to this sort of at the end, but the reason I point that out is you're navigating that space for the first time. The only officer I know who was prepared to be chairman and, and take that job was Colin Powell, because he had been National Security Advisor for, for Bush 41. So he'd been there before, but other than, there's no deputy's job, there's no training ground. Basically, you're trying to figure it out as you go. And everything is political, everything has, is seen through a political lens, and you're trying to figure that out. And, and then it happened for me in 07 as things have gotten tremendously politicized. So the environment in which that, you know, in which you take that job, obviously in the middle of war, uh, and, and then transitioning to, to President Obama. Um, that's the same environment that Jim Mattis, John Kelly, and H.R. McMaster are trying to figure out now. None of them have that background any more than I did. They're all exceptionally strong. Uh, it is, but it is a foreign background to them. Uh, and they're, they're, they're terrific, terrific officers. Uh, and, and yes, they are retired. But that's what they're trying to navigate uh, as we speak. Um, so the, the, the reason, uh, you know, at the time, I, and just to back up a second, in the, I think it was the 0405 time frame, there was something, I was out of country. And I came back, and there was a two-star general by the name of Baptiste who was on the front page or cover of Time magazine. And this was the revolt of the generals for Rumsfeld, which, you know, I, I got asked about that by a reporter right away. And I'd just come from Argentina and Chile. Uh, and, and basically, the reporter said, well, what do you think? And my response was, I've just come from two countries where the military ran the country forever. Um, and it was 1970, not 1870. Or, or 1770, uh, and we in the military, we sign up, we can, we can debate the policy, we do that privately, privately, but when the president makes a decision, we go. And the way we vote, if we disagree with that, is with our feet. That's your message, and it's actually an exceptionally strong message. So I disagreed strongly with what Batiste and, and a couple others did as well. And that was a really significant, that was a moment for me, obviously what happened to Pace. Um, and, and so the, 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 what, one of the questions is, well, what's at stake here? And I, there's a lot at stake as far as I'm concerned. What happens is politicians use military members to uh, enhance their political campaign. And, and it's been a long time now. I can go back certainly to the 2004 convention when Kerry's got nothing but military members lined up behind him. Uh, Richard Danzig, who was the Secretary of the Navy, uh, and a big Obama supporter earlier came to a Christmas party that my wife and I had in 2008, uh, and he was recruiting generals and admirals to, to go for a retires. And I said to Richard, he's a dear friend, I said, Richard, you've got to stop that. 
And he goes, why? I explained my reasoning. He looked at me sort of sideways. He says, I can't do that. I said, why not? He, said, he said it would be a unilateral ceasefire. And the next day, he sends me the article from the Arlington Times of the 150 flag officers that are supporting McCain. Um, when did it start? I'm not sure. I always, in these situations, like to look for patient zero. But a significant step was taken by P.X. Kelly, who was a commandant of the Marine Corps, and by Bill Crow, both of whom I love dearly, because they came out for Clinton very, very quickly. And when senior officers come out like that, they give permission, quite frankly. It may have been done before that, but that in my, in my life, I, I sort of registered to, 90, to 1992. So one is they line them up, and I'm not sure there's any analysis that's ever been done that having a military, a, a bunch of flag officers on, the, on, on your campaign visible uh, has had any impact on the election results whatsoever. So that's one. Secondly, an, another example of that is when Obama comes in, one of the first photos I see is Obama in the, in the Oval Office with a dozen or so recently retired uh, admirals and generals to close Gitmo. Now, my view of that is the President of the United States, it's a pretty powerful position, always has been. He didn't need that help. And these are people that I know, uh, I knew half of them, who felt very strongly about closing Gitmo. I did as well. But they, and these are senior people, uh, that didn't really understand what they were doing. And it's my view that they're damaging the institution they care the most about. Um, so we've got politicians who want them very visible. We've got policymakers that want to brandish their cred, their cred, if you will, on policies. And then probably what's most important is eventually what's at stake here is the trust of the American people. Uh, and do we, in fact, just become another constituent group uh, that politicians go after? And if that happens, that's really bad for the democracy. It's really bad for the institution. And it has a couple, potential couple del, uh, deleterious effects. One is we lose, we lose the, the support of the American people. Secondly, uh, Congress starts to look at us a little differently, obviously, and, and they they're our bankers. They control our resources. Um, so those things are, uh, are, are very much in play in this. And then lastly, Will moms and dads let their kids join the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, Marine Corps if they think we're politicized? So there's a lot at stake that people don't talk about in terms of what's going on. Um, the worry for me is, and this goes back to the chairman's job, and not a lot of people get to do this, but I get to sit in the Oval Office with the Secretary of Defense and the President and say, this individual, I'll just use my own name, Mike Mullen, ought to be the next four star that go out and run the Pacific. And woe be the day that if, if the president and his staff or her staff, if they are now integrating what they believe my politics are into that decision. Because we will not have the best people get to that position. And it's just another example of us being politicized. Um, so what do we do about it? Um, one, we've got to stay apolitical. Two, th and this cat's out of the bag. I mean, I've dealt with an awful lot of those who feel very strong. This is not about whether you have the right to do it. It's about do you understand the damage that you're doing to the institution? And because this cat's been out of the bag longer than I realized, we've been training our young that this is okay for maybe 20 plus years. I talked about this the other day at, an, at the Naval Academy. And, 
And I wish, as chairman, I'd gone to the superintendents of the academies and said, start teaching, start talking about Civ Mill at, at your level, because we, we need to train them all differently. Um, so in doing, doing something about it, we've got to, in, in fact, train our young differently. We've got to know we've got a problem, uh, uh, secondly. Um, uh, and then we also, and one of the reasons I just want to talk to you about it is we are known to fewer and fewer people in this country. We're less than 1%. The number of families that have men and women who served is very, very small. We're in fewer, fewer places. We've moved out of the vast majority of the country because of budget cuts, et cetera. So we're not teaching in schools, coaching Little League, showing up in churches, living in neighborhoods in a lot of places in the country. So the, so the people, the American people get to look at us from the standpoint of what they see in the media, assuming they're not you know, reaching out themselves. And I worry about the military just drifting further and further and further away from America. Uh, I, have, I have said more than once that it's almost like the French Foreign Legion. You know, we're actually paid pretty well. Uh, the American people would like, and, and as the Foreign Legion, just please go off, fight our dirty little wars, take care of that so we can get on with our lives. And that's not where we are, but we're heading in that direction. And it's very worrisome from my perspective about who we are as a republic. The next time we go to war, uh, which is the most serious decision any president ever has to make, the next time my own view is we need to call up a half a million kids to support our army in doing that. And I want that discussion, I want that debate going on in every house in this country that's got an 18-year-old who may be called up, and I want it to be a raging debate, and then if the president and the country decides we're going to go, then we go. And I think that that's fine, but at least America is in. And America has not been, has not had to buy in, save the check, which isn't a small check, but America has not had to buy into these particular wars. Um, just lastly on this, because I get asked about it, people come up to me all the time and say they're so relieved to have you know, Madison, McMaster, and Kelly where they are. And I understand that, because you know, they're called the bulwark. Um, a couple things about that. One is, I don't think any bulwark's going to hold in DC forever, first of all. Secondly, uh, back to sort of that trip from Argentina and Chile, you know, I've been in a lot of countries where the generals made the people feel pretty good about the republic. We wouldn't want to live in it. It is not the United States of America. So that's something that while I certainly understand where we are and I understand why people are comfortable, but this cannot become the norm for us. Um, because I know their backgrounds, and I know how they think. Um, there's a reason we've had uh, civilian control of the military for a couple hundred, you know, for centuries. It really works. It's tough. It's messy. Uh, you can get some, some decisions wrong, but that interaction and that principle has to be adhered to. And then lastly, uh, I would say, back to sort of the political conventions, I can't tell you how appalled I was to see Mike Flynn and John Allen at these two conventions. It's sort of, it's sort of the next step from what I've watched in recent conventions about signing them all up, or maybe they give a minor speech, or you line them up on the dais, 
Uh, Flynn I know well, he was my intel officer for a year and I knew him well when he worked with Stan McChrystal in Afghanistan after that. Uh, and Alan I knew since he was a midshipman, I've known since he was a midshipman and he'll stand up for himself. He knows what he's, they both know I'm not a happy guy with what they did. Um, uh, and, and again, the part, as much as them doing it, the other part that really bothered me about it was it's okay. They're given permission for younger ones that will come up and at some point in time look to them and say, well, they did it, so it's okay with me. So we have to draw a really bright line. Uh, we're living in an area, seemingly in a world that's in, intensely gray these days, whether it's the wars that we're talking about uh, or the media uh, the, and, and how it's doing. But there's got to be a bright line here. And we've been on this path actually for quite a while now, longer than we realize, and we need to pull it back. Um, and it's going to take the retired leadership. It's going to take who have very strong feelings about this, obviously, or they wouldn't be doing it. It's going to take them to sort of absorb the message and then pull back. Um, so, so those are some, I just, I'll leave you with that uh, from the standpoint of uh, mil the military and politics. Now, there are exceptions. I mean, if you kick over Wes Clark, if Wes Clark wants to become President of the United States, okay, he's in. He's kicked over to be a politician. That's fine. I have no problem with that. I'm actually supporting a, an organization uh, led by a couple of Iraq Afghanistan vets called With Honor that are, they're, they're raising money. One of them got out, they both got out of the Marine Corps. One made a lot of money and he's now trying to, they're trying to focus on uh, uh, vets to run for Congress next year um, because the, the, first of all, they believe this, but secondly, the, the studies, if you will, show that, the, that there's a significant chance that veterans are much more likely to be bipartisan than a lot of others. And we're down from 75%, 70, 75% at the end of World War II, uh, right even through the Vietnam area that are members of, members of Congress who've served down to 20% right now. So uh, there are, and the, he, they've got about 100 targeted right now for the elections next year. And they're trying to help them raise early money, which is the toughest money in a political campaign because nobody knows who you are, what you stand for, et cetera. Um, and I would hope that they're very, very successful in that regard. But if you kick over to that, that's fine. Otherwise, my expectations are that you should advise privately and not generally not speak publicly. Um, um, so I, I guess I can leave it at that and then kind of go where you want to go with other questions. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you talked before about walking with your feet if you disagree. Yeah. Um, Mattis has disagreed uh, in front of Congress about breaking the deal with Iran, and it looks like that he is going to be not certified this week. Do you think Mattis is going to walk with his feet? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I actually I know him exceptionally well. Uh, he's an honorable, loyal guy. Um, and just because I say you should do it, that doesn't mean that someone else will do it. Um, I think he's, he's been part. Have you said you should do it? Have I said that to Manus? No, I haven't talked to him about this. Um, and he's a man is a big boy. He can make up his own mind. I mean, uh, with, with and he certainly knows where I stand on it. Um, Mattis, I mean, quite frankly, back to the board, Mattis uh, is, first of all, he's got the president's ear. Secondly, he's navigating that space very, very carefully. Um, and uh, I don't know 
I actually don't know what he's going to do, you know, based on what happens this week, if, if it in fact gets decertified this week. Um, there's enough room in this, politically, if you will, to keep the deal in place, even though the president hasn't certified it. By every Congress not Correct. Correct. So that's, that's, I understand that, so, but that's 60 days. That's, you know, that's an infinite amount of time in, in Congress uh, in terms of what they can or can't do. So what happens with the Iranians if they do sort of I, I don't know. I, I supported the deal. Um, and I did, in the end, I went and saw Ernest, Ernie Moniz, who was the Secretary of the, in, uh, Energy. He's an MIT guy, and he was in the room with Kerry for the last weeks of negotiation. Technically, it's the most demanding deal that has ever existed with respect to arms. It is focused, which gets lost in the politics, it is focused exclusively on the nuclear program, not on terrorism, not on ballistic missiles uh, testing uh, or missile testing, et cetera. And Iran's a bad country. I mean, they, they are being led by really bad people, the, the, the supreme leader and the IRGC. One of the issues for me is, uh, is Rouhani, uh, who's obviously in, in their relatively moderate in their world, 60 plus percent of the Iranian population is 35 years or younger, generally attracted, inclined towards the West. If we get into a fight with them, we're going to do this for another 50 years. I mean, it's, we'll lose them. They, they will back, their, they're not fond of the regime at all, but if we strike them, we get into a fight with them, they're going to back them. And so we've lost it for another half century. And is that okay? We've obviously got allies now that are tied into this. So, so I don't know what's going to happen here. And quite frankly, it was, it was Congress uh, who put the 90-day the requirement in to sort of stick it in the president, President Obama's eye because he did the deal rather than come to them. And now, obviously, the majority is dealing with the president uh, of their party. Uh, and I think getting out of every 90 days at some point has got to happen. I mean, it just becomes, it's, to me, it's kind of crazy to have to, re have to do that. But like everything else right now, it's the politics of it. Yeah. Uh, Admiral, uh, by the way, thank you for your service. Thanks. And you've just done wonderful things for this country. Um, with that as a background, the great background you have, what do you see, or what are your thoughts on the potential military options with Korea? Really tough. <laughs> what you're reading, I mean, what you're reading is really true. Really tough targets. Uh, buried very deep in many cases, um, um, and the incredible uncertainty about what this 33-year-old idiot that's running the country will do, um, who is a, he's got a lethal legacy, bad guy, ruthlessly consolidated power, killed members of his family, killed members of the regime. And, as, and there are those that are arguing, well, let's just give it to him and contain him. There are a couple things about that. One is, if he has him, and to some degree he has him now, although by all reports he hasn't figured out how to put it on a missile, but he will, they will, um, that anybody would be, you know, he's, if he uses him, it's a suicide mission. I, okay, on the face of it, I understand that. I wouldn't put it past this guy. Secondly, the other thing is if he gets him, 
the questions start to be start to open up. Is South Korea going to get them? Or is Japan going to get them? It's the same issue with Iran, quite frankly. If Iran gets a nuclear weapon, um, it, does that mean Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt, etc., are they going to get them? And typically, inside those countries, they're going to do what they think is best for their own security. So. The other thing is, is the uncertainty that no matter what we did, let's just say we did a precision, precision strike on one of his launch pads. It's another test, uh, which, is, which is relatively small, but you just don't know if he isn't going to unleash on Seoul. And there hasn't been war on that peninsula since the 50s. My concern is that it will, it will become disproportionate response very rapidly, combined with miscalculation, et cetera. And there's going to be tens of thousands, almost no matter what we do, who could well perish as a result of that. So the uncertainty is, is significant. And the other thing, and, and this goes both ways, it may win it is the, what's changed in my world, and, uh, it, from my point of view, is the addition of President Trump and his views, um, because it's high stakes poker, and he's playing high stakes poker, and it's high risk, uh, and he may win it. You know, in the end, he may win it. Um, what I try to do in this crisis to watch is, one, what Jim Mattis is saying, what his statements are saying, which is working through diplomacy, um, um, and his statements have been very, very measured, um, and also watching the Chinese. If the Chinese don't move on this, we're not going to solve it. We're, we're not going to solve it. I, I don't think. I don't, I don't know that. I, I say I think the odds of us solving it directly with him, with Kim Jong-un, are pretty small. Uh, China's got a lot in play, but China doesn't trust us. They, they, and I understand that. They, they, in fact, don't think that we have their national interests in. They obviously don't want the regime change, and I'm not arguing for that. They don't want you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of North Koreans coming across their border. They don't want the instability. They can't buy the North yet. Their economy can't handle that in terms of having to pay for that. So it's a, it's a I don't want to say it's a stalemate, but it is really frozen, and it's not in a good place. And the other thing is, there's not a lot of room between locked and loaded, which is what our president said, and what's next, uh, from, from my point of view. So what do you do? What do I do? <laughs> I had my turn in the barrel. <laughs> That's for Joe Dunford and Jim Mattis to figure out. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, by the way, I'm a mother of a, of a, a Iraq war veteran. Good for you. Good, yeah. um, good, good for him or her. Him and he fought in the Battle of Fallujah. Yeah. But anyway, my question is really, what did you what, what did you mean when you said he may win, yeah. Trump may win? What do you mean by His that? rhetoric, uh, I mean, he's what made it, yeah. he may get this kid, he may get this kid to stand down. Okay. In North Korea, yeah, yeah. He, he may. I mean, that's the game. That's the bet right now. That the rhetoric. Well, okay. I, I'm not. I'm not advocating for that or saying that. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. But it is high stakes poker. Uh, there's a lot at risk, um, and you know, in a high risk environment, you, you it can pay off really well or it can pay off really badly. Yes, sir. Thank you again for your service Thanks. and your leadership. Thanks. Are you going to write a book on what you talked to us about tonight on the, the erosion of the divide? <sighs> I hate inside Washington books. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I just, I literally, 
I mean, I haven't even read Bob Gates's book, which people tell me is really good. Yeah, thanks. I, and that he treated me, you know, well. But I just, it, typically, if those books are they do well, it's people telling on people. And I know that's not that's not issue. That's not an issue. Um, and that's not what you're asking about. I so I don't. It's a good. It's a great question, and it is something I can certainly write about. It would be such a good Yeah. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. You say we're in gray times, and I think we all agree we're in gray times, and that red lines need to be drawn. And they seem to be needed to be drawn in almost every aspect of, of what we're facing. And you say that senior people are the people who are going to have to do it, people who have been in these positions. Do you see a coalition of these senior people getting together and trying to make some rational uh, arguments for where this country should go? No. <laughs> so obviously we had a we had a different election. I'll be kind. Last fall, I don't think President Trump is the cause. I think he's symptomatic, and I think there are still plenty of people that brought us this outcome that are still in Washington and are still in charge. So I'm a, I'm a sailor. I'm a ship guy. I commanded ships my whole life. The Democratic Party goes aground in nautical terms on the 7th or whatever the day was, 100 miles inland as far as I was concerned. They couldn't have been harder aground. Um, and then two weeks later, we reelect the captains of the ship. Makes no sense to me. Absolutely no sense. The lead, I think to solve this, not just for us, it's a global issue. Who are the, it's, it takes leadership. And people run from these jobs now, and, and they can tell you why. Um, but it's going to take leaders. I got asked about Charlottesville the other day. Uh, actually, as it was literally that day. Um, and my response was, we need leaders in this country at every level and in every profession who are bringing people together. We need unity right now. I did a show with, uh, I actually did a couple hours on stage with Tom Brokaw three or four months ago. And as I got ready to sit down with Tom, and we just interviewed each other. And Tom's a good friend of mine, and I've got a lot of regard for him. Uh, at, he had done, NBC had just done 50 years of news with Brokaw, 66 to 2016, which is you know, my life, and it was his as well. And he'd hate it, and he may find out after this, he'd hate it if I said he was Forrest Gump. But I mean, he was everything. I mean, he was everywhere over that 50 years. One of the snippets that came out of that is he sat down with Maria Shriver, who I've gotten to know a little bit because I work, in, I work a veterans issue in West LA, uh, and she's been helpful, as her brother Bobby has. And, and in filming this, Brokaw sat down with her, and she said, and I didn't know this, she said, obviously I'm a registered Democrat. I'm so disgusted with my own party that I resigned. I didn't know that. And Brokaw said to her, well, what did you learn? And this, is when I, this was when, I think, uh, Schwarzenegger was governor. She, go, she said, I learned there are a lot of really good Republicans with some really good ideas. And that's the solution. Okay, that, that's the solution. On the other end, on the very young spectrum, I was listening to NPR one day, and uh, they were interviewing, I kind of picked it up halfway through on the radio, and they were interviewing last March a young student a female student from a Northeast liberal school, and she was very frank about that. She'd been in her echo chamber for four years, and she, her whole family, she's from Southwest Pennsylvania. Red, 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 as she said. She goes, and so the classic question to a senior, what are you gonna do? 
She goes, I gotta go home and I gotta find out why my family feels this way. I really need to understand it. And if we don't get out of our echo chambers and if we don't go reach across the aisle and listen and stop calling each other names and yelling at each other, this is gonna continue until, and, and I worry quite frankly, it continues until there's something really catastrophic that happens in the country. We're not on a good path right now. I think just about everybody would agree to that. We haven't had real wages go up in this country since 1970. That, that's, that's the issue. The American dream is either gone or it's disappearing. That's the, ca the cause of that is what this is all about, and many other things. I agree, I agree with everything you're saying, but aren't there some leaders like you who can be out there saying exactly this? Well, yes, obviously, and I try, I try to do that. Um, but it's not just me. It's got to be everybody. I mean, it's literally every profession. It's young people. We cannot sit on the sidelines and whine and then expect it to get better. We can't have whatever it is, 40% of Americans vote to turn, you know, for years. That's not just this most, whatever it was. I mean, it's always been a small number, which is... Which, you know, I was in Iraq for elections. I was in Afghanistan for elections. You know, it's 80% in these countries. It's an extraordinary number. And we can't turn them out here. We, I think the American people have to take control of this, honestly. It's not going to happen in Washington. The place is broken. We all know that. It was broken before Trump got there. It's going to stay broken. And as much as we'd like to, some people want to yell about Trump, I mean, quite frankly, we had... And, and there's a yin and a yang in Washington. You know, the Democratic Party delivered a lot of this to set it up, quite frankly. Um, and there is this move, you know, whenever you get a new administration to wipe out everything that the predecessors did. So it's got to be all of us. It, it cannot possibly be just, and it doesn't have to be that many leaders. But the leaders that brought us are still, most of them are still there. Yeah. Yes, I have two questions on if the president gives an order to go to war, can the military drag their feet or make a lot of decisions, or is it commander-in-chief, do or die? The commander-in-chief is the commander-in-chief, and it's do or die, as far as the military is concerned. I, that question gets asked about nukes, you know, can the president pull the trigger, and, the, and actually the the uh, the antidote that comes up is when Nixon was president and Jim Schlesinger, who was Secretary of Defense, turned to someone, maybe the military guy with the football, and said, and apparently Nixon was drinking pretty heavily at the time. No, he was not, excuse me. Okay. I was in the White House when he was not drinking. Okay. That is a fiction. Okay. All right. That's, uh, that's the story. I, I take that back. So he wasn't drinking, but the story goes, Schlesinger said, call me if he's going to do anything like that. And by the way, he was way off base doing that, and he never yeah. should have done that. I worked with him that night when he was residing on his speech, and let me tell you, he was absolutely safe. He knew what he was doing. There's no chance of that happening. That was Schlesinger being Schlesinger. Okay. Sorry. Well, I'm not so. So I apologize. I didn't get the first part right. The second part. We didn't get that right either. Schlesinger didn't get that right. Huh? No, it's, that's what Schlesinger said. Right. Okay. Yeah. Said so that part's right. No, I got it. I, I understand that. My second question So my point is, it's tough to get in the way, quite frankly, particularly 
uh, particularly if we are responding to a nuclear strike. You, you have minutes. You, you don't have time to pull a committee together, by and large. What are either your political aspirations or your ability to be drafted into politics in a, in a national way? Well, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty close to Mike Bloomberg. I think it's, it's at least some people know that he and I were talking about that last year. And uh, I, never, I never had to answer the question because, uh, because he decided not to run. So, but when I'm talking to you about you, know, you getting out there or people getting out there, that's a conversation I'm having with myself. How do I, how do I help? Um, but, I mean, leadership is sort of where I grew up. That's, uh, um, and so it's, it, it, I'm trying to figure that out as well. Yes, ma'am. Uh, in regards to the elections, we can't really wait for an election. I think an election is going to happen. How do you see the next six months with an irrational leader and treachery at the doorstep? I don't think that you're going to have a political revolt. And, and this is a political group. I don't personally think that we're going to be able to stop it. I'd like to know how you think, besides being very active, which almost everybody here is, how we can stop what is going on now. So I'm a Vietnam vet, um, and I'm you know, of that age, and obviously went through, we went through a lot back then as a country. and. And I actually think we'll get through this, whatever this is. I think it's going to be a rough run. I'm not laying it all on one individual. I wouldn't do that. Um, uh, and I think we'll get through it and we'll be better for it. Uh, I think the checks and balances are kicking in. They're never, they never seem to be quick enough. But the, I think the judiciary is kicking in uh, and Congress is kicking in. Um, and it, I think it's really up to them, I mean, they're the elected leaders of the country, to step forward where they think it's best to do that, depending on what happens. Sorry if I feel pessimistic. <clears throat> Every day, a different rule that Obama has put in has been decided. I mean, I'm very much into the environment, the fact that EPA has been has decimated. Right. I, I just don't see time on our side. If you're on the side of being really, really frightened that war could happen, and having lived through Bay of which was not voluntary on. Well, we're, I mean, I mean I, there are a lot of people that feel like you. There are a lot of people that th say things are okay. Um, okay. So, but, but, what I said was true, and this isn't the only administration, it's just pretty intense, is administrations come in and undo as much, an awful lot of what has been done in the past. Uh, and certainly they are doing that. Uh, and I think part of that is, part of the reason they do that is because that's why they believe they've been elected. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I am personally and professionally nonpartisan for reasons that some people in this room understand. So, I, I may know more, in a way, about what both sides of the aisle are doing. So, I, from my, and I don't want to make this a statement, I want to ask you a question. Uh, you're absolutely correct when you say the job of the new administration is to undo what the previous administration has done. There may be a lot of people in this room who don't like that. There may be others who are just fine with it. it here, 
And by the way, I had a lot of respect for President Nixon. My father worked with him, even though he was against him on most issues. But it would appear that one of the key issues we've had here is a president with a short attention span who doesn't really understand his I, I, I apologize for interrupting. You have to ask a question. Okay, and therefore, what do you think is the solution to that? What are the people, and you are absolutely right, I was beginning to the posture. The, what is the, the solution, solution is that? have good people. What are the people you know doing Did, to help him understand some of these critical issues better? Every president is different. The solution for every president is have good people around you. I was asked a year ago, whoever the president was going to be, by someone, what would you what would you advise? The single advice is pick good people to help you because the job's an impossible job. So to me, that is a solution. And, and everyone's different, and I think obviously we all go through, whenever you get a new president, who is this individual? And that's some of what we're going through. Yeah. So uh, take us back to sort of policy and strategic level. Um, I've heard you talk in the past, actually around the election, that you were very much in favor of TPP from a strategic point. Yeah. We're now in, could you talk about TPP, the coalition, China, that sort of thing, away from the Korean issue? Well, I'm a big believer that, that healthy economies globally are what creates stability. And I've been in too many countries for the last 40 plus years where parents look at you either and, and say basically what we say here, which is I'd like to raise my son or daughter to a higher standard of living. And, and that's, a, that's a global uh, measure, if you will, for me. So I've always talked in support of can we, can we have relationships where, which make us both better. I think TPP was a huge step in that direction. Lots of challenges getting there, and I understand that. Um, uh, I worry one is that China will walk into this vacuum in what they call, I think it's RCEP, um, which, is, which is much different in that other than, just, than what TPP was. Uh, and, and the other is, and it's part of, I think, the story, one of the stories I worry about is, well, who are we right now? And, and what were we and what are we? One of the things that I talk to foreign leaders about uh, and it's not like dozens, but when I get a chance is say, please talk to us and tell us what's going on. Give us your perspective on the United States because we're changing clearly and we should know that change and understand that change uh, as much as possible. Um, uh, and, and talk to our leaders, not just the president, but talk to our leaders uh, about what you see. And then secondly, uh, and actually he's had, I've talked to a, a woman in Europe uh, who's a, in a s s significant Political position that you know what President Trump has done to NATO is they're going to have to they're going to have to buy more stuff. We've all been talking about that for years. They're going to have to be better in their own defense than they've been. So he's had a constructive uh, impact there, and you know really sort of shook them up. There is there is an independence that they now talk about that they had not been talking about before. Um, but I basically, and I think the relationship, I think ours and China's relationship between the two countries is the most important relationship of this century, basically because we're the two biggest economies. And the long-term question is, can we figure out how to get along and make it better for the world? Uh, and if we do that, that's really positive. If we don't do that, it's really bad for the world. So, yes, ma'am. We're talking about um, possibly 500,000 
soldiers in case of war or something going on, and that every family should discuss it. So where would you get 500,000 extra soldiers? Are you talking about a draft? Yes. I am. Yeah, more, more specific, there's more to that story, but in, I'm a budget guy before I was a policy guy. I budget most of my life. Uh, every service wants to be as big with as much as possible. Uh, I now, and this is my learning, I love the Army and I learned a lot about the Army because the Army, United States Army is doing well, the rest of the military is doing well. If it's not, the rest of the military, the other services are not doing well. And I really came to believe that even though I wasn't trained that way. That said, the next time Gates famously said at one point, the next president or sec def would be nuts to send 100,000 people somewhere. Uh, I don't disagree that, that it's not, I don't think it's very likely given what, what has happened, but I will tell you since 1983, when we went into Grenada, we, had, we are batting zero, zero, zero for, for, for predicting where we would go into combat. So it's not, a, it's, it's, it's not a science that produces, or a study that produces good results. So I wanted the Army, when we went into, uh, in 03, the Army was about 485,000, uh, significantly down, obviously, from the Vietnam time frame, and obviously way down from World War II. Um, we built it back up to almost 585, um, and now they're back to about 480 or 470. I want to take them down to pick an, uh, like 350. Uh, and the reason is I want an army big enough to put 100,000 somewhere for a year, but we won't be able to sustain it. And, and these wars are not short wars. You know, I'm, the empirical evidence is, is pretty obvious to me. So if we're going to relieve that 100,000, we're going to need another 100 to do it, which is notionally draft a half a million kids to come and do it. Now, there are a lot of issues associated with my army buddies kill me when I say that. But this is the political piece. I want to get the political decision right to go to war. I want the American people to vote go to war. And I'm looking to have that debate in every house. If there's another way to do that, I'm open. This is one way to do it. There's been some talk, potential legislation for Congress to um, have to approve a nucleus by the president. Do you think this is a good idea, or does it have any chance of I don't, uh, notionally, I don't think it's a good idea, and I don't think there's much of a chance, but I, I don't know. I haven't followed that as a, as a possibility. Um, I just, I, I just don't know. And you, you almost can't have that with strategic nuclear weapons if we've been, if, this, if the Russians have launched it. You, you can't have a vote, you can't go get permission, because the president's got literally minutes to make a decision, is this real or not? Yes, Can you shed some light with your inside information on what happened to our naval ships that got hit by other ships and killed our soldiers and maybe Actually, I don't have any inside information, and that's my community, and I'm a ship guy. So um, I've got a view, but that, and this is really mostly on the Navy, and mostly on my community, the surface community. But we've been doing things uh, since the 90s, and at one point in time, in the late 90s, I ran the community, that I think has produced it. I think the investigations will show this over time. Um, I read today uh, that uh, the CO, the, the uh, McCain was in the XO, the two top officers were relieved, rightfully so, from my point of view. Um, uh, but I know that I know the head of the Navy right now, and they are they are deep diving this to figure out how, how we got here. I think it's going to be training. I think it's going to be t 
time. I don't think it's we're running our ships too hard. In fact, when you're when you're home ported in Japan, your operational tempo, the amount of time that you're underway on a ship, is significantly higher than if you're in San Diego or Norfolk. And from my point of view, the more I was at sea, the better I was. So we're not wearing them out. I'd be shocked if that came out of it. It might, for some, in some way that I don't understand. Um, uh, and in the end, it's going to come down to who we pick for commanding officers. That's, and rightfully so, which is sort of the number one law of the sea. And how do we do that? And obviously, in these two cases, we didn't get that right. And it's, or four cases, quite frankly. What does it say about our technology? Well, it's, the, the, and these are billion dollar ships, two billion dollar ships. Uh, when you go to sea, there's a, there's technology that can tell you a lot, but when you get into close quarters, it, it's the humans that are making the decisions. The humans with eyes on or not with eyes on, that's very much, and, and because of the, the, the tonnage, because of the speeds, you need to have that. You're not gonna have technology steer you out of it. You can have, you, it, the technology can be going off, but if you're just totally relying on that, these kinds of things will happen. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Actually, we do have a fair, fairly significant capability to shoot a lot of these missiles down. But apparently, it wasn't, it wasn't operative. Yeah. I guess there was a big morale issue, and all of the people on the ship were, well, I don't know. So you don't have any insight? I don't have any insight of that. Yes, sir. Uh, <clears throat> Sorry, a little less topical, but going back to what you were talking about before, um, this business of the change in the attitude about how the military involves itself in political activities. I remember as a kid growing up in Berlin, uh, I was State Department, uh, my dad was DCM there, yeah. uh, but went to high school and junior high school with the military kids for a grade. And we were taught, sort of constantly in school, that one of the reasons you honor the American military is because they were apolitical. Yeah. They were not like all the other armies. Right. And that it was the military's job to know how to get the job done, but it was their deference to the civilians right. who decided what the job was, that this was the reason why the American military was special. Yeah. And I, I even thinking like the first real campaign that I knew about was 1968. Uh, we were I apologize, I'm gonna have to do it to you too. Yeah. You need a question. I'll be clear. <laughs> and they said you can you can say vote, but you can't say who to vote for as long as yeah. you were in yeah. the military. So it was a very bright line, yeah. at least for me, between 63 and 68 when I was there. You've got to ask a question. That's the house rule. <laughs> well, I'm not sure exactly when the bright line faded. In my life, it was, it was Crow and Kelly, specifically. Uh, supporting Clinton uh, very visibly, uh, and Clinton's, uh, you know, I the military background, Vietnam War, all that stuff. That was for for them. Uh, Kelly had been commandant of the Marine Corps, and obviously, and Crowd been chairman. That was a big deal, and maybe, I'm not sure if that's patient zero, but it's pretty close. 
uh, and then it's just continued since that time. And it needs to be bright, and we're not teaching it. We're actually teaching the, meaning, we're learning the opposite, not actively teaching, but just by our actions. Yes, sir? How does cyber warfare change sort of your calculus going forward? Like, you think about 100,000 troops, right, or 500,000 troops. Yeah. How, how does cyber change that? That equation and budgeting resources. Dramatically, in terms of, I mean, we've stood up now for maybe four or five years uh, young men and women who basically, that's their warfare specialty, just like aviation or submarines or artillery um, uh, or flying jets. But that's a, that's a relatively slow change um, in, a, in a space that's moving very, very quickly. Um, I think, that, I think we've got two existential threats as a country. One of the R Russian nukes and the other cyber, because I think cyber can, and I define that cyber can shut us down and change our way of life uh, in terms of hitting our financial system, our grids, our logistics system, et cetera. Uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a very dangerous threat. Now, we're, the military's pretty good at it. Uh, the government's okay at it. And obviously we've seen, you know, we're struggling, although we're a lot better, we stro struggled in the private world, uh, uh, in the private sector. Uh, but I, I worry a great deal about that. But it's changing a lot of how we think about what we're going to do. And it's actually relatively inexpensive. Look what Putin's done. Admiral, uh, there are two jobs in the White House that really have to be non-political. One is the National Security Council. And the person heads that. The second is, for different reasons, the chief of staff. Yeah. Do you believe that the president, people have been appointed in those positions, keep succeeding someone else, are in fact non-political? I think, yeah. well, I, I, I don't know for sure. I, I will tell you, McMaster, who's the national security advisor, he's still an active duty three star. My own view is he needs to retire. He should have when he took the job. And he politicized himself immediately by writing an op-ed with Gary Cohn, I think on Paris. It was either Paris or something else that was in the journal. Now he's learning. He's been quiet lately. He's learned to, uh, to he, he's less visible, which I think is really important. Um, and he's a bright guy, and so I think that'll evolve. Uh, with John Kelly, I honestly don't know. I, I mean, I just don't know. Um, they, one of the things, I mean, you wouldn't know what my politics are. I wouldn't, I've known these guys forever. I couldn't tell you what, what Kelly and Mattis's politics are. I just don't know. Um, it's, a, it's a question that, that I, I could probably ask someone that's, you know, rel you know, that's sort of in that environment to see where he is. It is, it's, but it's also what I said earlier, it is new space. This is, this is a new environment for all three of these individuals that they're trying to figure it out as they go in stride and do these jobs. And there isn't any training for that except tough jobs, thick skin, uh, you know, and obviously a level of competence that I think they all have. Admiral, we're, yeah. we're going to take one more question. Our right, you pick chair, it. Patricia, says that we have to cut off on time. So we've imposed on you enough. Pick a final question. You pick it. <laughs> this young lady. Okay. <laughs> um, you were talking about protracted wars before, and I thought you might say something about how you feel additional troops in Afghanistan, given how long we've been there, given yeah. the corruption, etc., might improve a fairly grim situation. So the corruption part is tr is really important. Uh, if any of you have seen this Vietnam series, you know that, that was a pretty corrupt government. One of the things 
as has been uh, the case in Afghanistan. And one of the things I think we as a country are going to have to figure out is how do we deal with corruption differently in the 21st century than we have in the past. We sort of, uh, we, we sort of winked at it, dealt with despots, et cetera. Uh, because it suited our interests at the time, it's, it's too transparent in the 21st century. I don't think we're going to be able to get away with it because it's really counter to what we believe. And in my view, the corruption in Afghanistan essentially undid the strategy to the degree there was a strategy. But it, I mean, the, the story I tell is we show up with our, you know, in the villages and they're glad to see us and we say we're here to help and they said, great. Six months later, the same village elders are saying to us, well, we thought you were here to help. Uh, yeah, we are. Well, why are you still supporting this incredibly corrupt leadership group, not Karzai himself, but his family and others? Why are you doing that? Which is, which is killing, you know, and they're absolutely killing their own people in that regard. So I think we, we're going to need to do that. One of the numbers that motivates me on the importance of staying there is and, and uh, General Joe Dunford, who's the current chairman, and I've known Joe for some time, told me, I don't know, a year ago when I saw him, and I don't see him that often, but basically he said, 22 of the 61 terrorist organizations in the world that aspire to do us harm live there. So, so there's a real danger of walking away from that. I mean, believe me, I'd love to have everybody come home. Um, and in the end, I think, I think that is the reason that prevailed in terms of the additional troops. Now, anybody that knows anything about sort of numbers is 12,000 or 14,000. It's, it's not a big number. Uh, but I trust, and I don't know, someone said I was on the, you know, my inside information. I don't have a lot of inside information anymore. Um, but I trust that the leadership has worked through sort of what it's going to take to contain that and not and address it and not let it get out to to affect us. And on the other side, I spent a lot of time in Pakistan. We can't do it without a relationship with Pakistan. And it's a I think it's the most dangerous country in the world. We're talking about Iran and North Korea developing weapons. They got plenty of them and plenty of corruption and plenty of politics that you know that doesn't do anything. And India sort of I actually believe, and, and this isn't a, meant to be a paid commercial or anything like that, I actually believe that if we're going to get to Pakistan, it's got to be Kashmir. And the leadership in India and Pakistan have to open it up in that regard. So, um, and China does give Pakistan some cover. Um, but Pakistan gives those terrorists plenty of cover as well. Okay, thanks. And, uh, I I want to thank you again, both for spending the time with us, despite Debbie wanting inside information. Uh, it, was, uh, it was terrific. And uh, thank you all, and uh, thank you all for the common good for uh, arranging this uh, a little bit.